Rockers. I'd like to tell you a story. It's about a little boy who grew up in Sweden in the 60s and 70s. <clears throat> His dad was this tall, good-looking army officer. His mom was this pretty but shy linguist. He had a brother and two sisters, and they lived in a suburb of Stockholm. <clears throat> and that little boy was me. I think I remember the first time my dad hit me. I was around three or four, I think, and he, I was walking in front of the TV and he kicked me and I flew into some bookshelves. And I remember there was blood and my mom was screaming. You see, my dad had a lot of problems and he took it out on me and my mom, never touched my brothers or sisters. And this started when I was about three or four when Antla was about 11 or 12. It was a really hard part of my life because I had to go to school with a black eye or, you know, some of my hair was missing when he'd been yanking my head. <clears throat> I think some of you may know what I'm talking about. Welcome to Hoosier Illusion, hosted by me, Neil Tafflinger, and Ryan J. Downey, two grown-up hardcore punks longtime journalists, and longtime friends born and bred in Indianapolis, Indiana. After growing apart, we're reuniting to talk about who we were, who we are, and where we're going. Follow along as we navigate the rugged terrain of our mental landscapes, littered with pop culture, subculture, and the odd reference to Johnny Ringo, James Dean, Axl Rose, and other notable Hoosiers. In this episode, we talk about a TED Talk given by action hero Dolph Lundgren on healing and forgiveness. I will say that there was a there was a spectacular self own when I saw that pop up. My first snarky response was, "Is he going to apologize for the Punisher?" And <laughs> <laughs> oh, it may be for the grease paint five o'clock shadow he has in the movie. Yeah, maybe. Although the monologue is pretty fucking awesome. I would argue and have, in fact, argued that. Um, Dolph Lundgren was a fantastic Frank Castle in a bad Punisher movie. And even, mm. and, and you know what? I, w I will take, in retrospect, um, I will take his Punisher movie certainly over the Ray Stevenson Punisher movie. Despite was that the, was that the one that came out like in the last 10 years and I totally didn't know about it until six months ago? Yes. It was directed by Lexi Alexander and she loves uh, cartoonish uh, horror movie levels of violence, which is all well and good, but. There wasn't really a story. The character of Jigsaw was like a Dick Tracy villain. And Ray Stevenson, who played the bearded member of the Warriors 3 in the Thor movies, which is funny because he, he is <laughs> virtually unrecognizable between the two. He played the Punisher as just basically like a dead-eyed... Uh, he's basically the Punisher as Jason Voorhees. 
Uh, he is uh, we- he is wearing the costume, which is a, and, it, and the movie is called Warzone, which are about all they have going for them. I think they're supposed to be. Uh, I, I I don't actually know for sure, but I think that they're supposed to be. It's supposed to be a sequel to the Thomas Jane movie, um, but uh, it doesn't really reference it that I recall. I don't know if it's a, a reboot, but but yeah, we have uh, we have Jigsaw in that movie. M- Micro Microchip is in that movie, uh, played by Wayne Knight, which is kind of awesome casting. Wayne Knight for of Jurassic Park and Seinfeld fame. Hmm. But yeah, and I remember. Thomas Jane was trying to get a good Punisher sequel made. His Punisher movie where John Travolta, I think, was billed over him. Yeah. Um, not so great. He's another guy where I think he was a good Frank Castle in a bad Punisher film. I, I would, I mean, certainly Warzone is worse worse than the Dolph Lundgren movie, despite being more recent and having a undoubtedly a larger budget. Um, I actually think that the Dolph Punisher movie... You know, some fun martial arts scenes. I like that the Yakuza and the Mafia are the villains. It's got it's got a few things going for it. And I thought Dolph was great in the movie. I just I, I need to go back and watch it again. Well, I don't need to, but I could. <laughs> I just got the overwhelming vibe I got was that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles might show up at any given moment. Well, I mean, he is in the sewers of New York. Yeah, that, might be that, that was just like the 80s vibe where I was like, Donatello is going to come like rap here in a minute. I believe it played in theaters in Australia for one day. <laughs> I mean, we got to remember this was like pre blade, let alone X-Men, let alone, uh, you know, Marvel cinematic yeah. universe. I mean, this was a long time ago. One of the things that is irritating about it is that he never wears the Punisher skull. And it's like, okay, I understand, especially in that era you know, there was this reluctance to be too comic booky, and things needed to feel real world and gritty and so on. But it's like that movie is super corny and not real world and gritty. So it's like, did you really think, you know, having a naked Punisher praying <laughs> in the sewers of New York, played by a black hair-dyed Dolph Lundgren with a black grease paint five o'clock shadow, somehow... The Punisher skull on his chest was going to like bring the movie down. <laughs> that was a that was a bridge too far. Uh, yeah. So uh, it also has uh, Oscar winner Louis Gossett Jr. as in that version of the Punisher story, uh, he's an ex-cop of being the Punisher. There's a great ending scene in that movie of Louis Gossett Jr. on a rooftop yelling Frank, <laughs> and it's <laughs> you'll. 80s it also feels a little 90s and i think it's because it was right on that cusp i think it was made in 1989 and i think found its way to vhs in america maybe a year or two later Um, yeah i feel like i saw it in the early 90s uh, it's the it's the bringing it down of comic book movies (laughs) exactly i i feel like we should probably just lift this segment and put it in a pop curse rewatch episode i would say so but i also think that in fairness to being our full selves and hoosier illusion <laughs> we should just leave it here especially because we we are tying it into some hoosier illusion-esque content related to dolph lundgren here in a second but oh. while we're still on the subject of the punisher for a moment <laughs> i had the segue fail to interview john travolta on the set of 
was it get not get shorty what's the sequel to get shorty it's like be cool maybe yeah it was called be cool 2005 movie get shorty good movie be cool terrible sequel uh directed by f gary gray who would later do the straight out of compton movie uh but anyway i interviewed travolta on the set of that and all i wanted to talk about was the punisher because i knew he was either making that or just had it wasn't out yet um and he was he was excited to talk about the punisher and it was great and then um I actually covered the press junket for The Punisher when it came out, and Travolta remembered me from, you know, that conversation had been like six months prior or something, and so when I walked in, he's like, what did you think? Like, he knew I was a fan, you know, and it was an awkward moment of like, uh... (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were awful. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, could have been worse. I did appreciate that they tried to pseudo-adapt the Welcome Back Frank storyline you know the russian and his neighbors and all of that that was kind of cool the scene where his entire family is massacred in that movie i don't know if you remember it is comically bad uh they they're like in the bahamas or something yeah they take it from his wife and kids in the park and expand it to like someone took his entire family literally there's like cousins uncles and like it's like a family reunion on a beach with like you know a hundred family members or something and uh it's yeah it's ridiculous and then there's a whole sort of ridiculous explanation for the punisher skull and it has this sort of voodoo vibe to it or something it this is what happens when you give comic book IP to people who are not comic book fans. Yes. And they try to make it cool in they their... To, and they try to, in their minds, it's smarter and cooler and more grounded. And it yeah, tends it to sucks. fail on all those fronts. But, you know, Tom Jane was in love with the character and really tried to get a better Punisher sequel made. And at a certain point threw in the towel um i remember uh reading some interview with him that might have been on ain't it cool news it was a long time ago where he he was he was saying how excited he was to uh you know not have to eat so much tuna and chicken and lift so many weights because he was staying in punisher shape the whole time he was trying to get that made and he was talking about having his infant daughter in his lap as he watched all these like 70s action movies and cop stories and stuff and was trying to get all these ideas and I don't know if you ever saw this. It's definitely worth YouTubing and could appear in our show notes, if uh, assuming it still exists. But at some point, well after the fact, Tom Jane did a like self-financed, unofficial rogue Punisher short called "Dirty Laundry," uh, which also oh. which also has why am I blanking on his name? Because I love him. Uh, the actor Clay from Sons of Anarchy, uh, Hellboy. What's up, uh, guys? yeah. Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman. Uh, he's in, he's in Punisher Dirty Laundry. Um, I'd like to note that this is probably the only time this year I will have a Hollywood factoid that you don't. <laughs> <laughs> right, I was on the tip of my tongue. Yeah, so Dirty Laundry, what, you know, he did the Punisher movie in 2004 gave up on the sequel before it ever happened after you know a long time in development and then made this short in 2012 that actually brought it to comic-con and it's really yeah, excellent it, it's um, on youtube yeah, okay great it's um, at, at least like a bootleg of it is on youtube it is better than the 
Dolph Lundgren movie, obviously. It's better than Warzone. It's better than Tom Jane's Punisher movie. It was up until the Netflix Marvel Cinematic Universe adjacent shows. I think it was the best on-screen depiction of the Punisher. Uh, what was great about him bringing it to Comic-Con and showing it there was that it wasn't advertised as a Punisher-related property. And there's a poster for it now that makes it obvious that it's the Punisher because there's a skull on it and stuff. But when he first yeah. showed it to people, you don't realize that he's the Punisher till like the very end of the little short. So it's cool. It's it's called Dirty Laundry because it's literally a story about him doing his laundry, doing his laundry, and like some stuff that happens. It's pretty awesome. And so it's like at the end, you know, he gets the Punisher shirt out of the washing machine and you're like oh it's pretty cool <laughs> it sounds like a really terrible pitch though what if the punisher <laughs> did his laundry, does his laundry? <laughs> by Addy shankar who's uh a youtube personality and uh you know he's in the dread movie that carl urban made which was also oh. another comic book movie that was really awesome i don't know if you've ever seen that a long time ago. It's pretty great. It did the same thing as Dirty Laundry in the sense that it was smart enough to keep keep its story small. You know, the whole thing essentially takes place in the same building, kind of diehard style. Yeah. It's pretty great. But yeah, so this brings us to the original on-screen Frank Castle, Dolph Lundgren, and a video that was recommended to me by one of my oldest friends... Still a close friend, a fellow transplanted Hoosier who has been listening to Hoosier Illusion, Drew Pierce, and recommended this. Hi, Drew. Recommended this uh, Dolph video to me, and to his credit, you know, texted me like three days later and was like, "You haven't watched that video yet, have you?" <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I hadn't, so I was kind of like, "Okay." Yeah. And I love Dolph Lundgren. I uh, actually own his book. I've interviewed him two or three times i have a picture with him i'm a fan uh showdown in little tokyo which was brandon lee's first big american action film prior to his standalone vehicle rapid fire and then of course the crow which is my favorite movie of all time showdown in little tokyo is it's a little bit bigger budget it's you know it's a slicker action movie than say the dolph lundgren punisher but still very much in that b-movie style uh, very corny, but very fun and lots of great fight choreography. Basically, the conceit of the movie is that Asian American Brandon Lee plays a police officer who was raised in America and around shopping malls and so forth. And very Nordic looking Dolph Lundgren plays a police officer who was raised in Japan and, uh, you know, is a Buddhist and meditates and this and that. So it's kind of a little funny role reversal. And of course, they're both martial arts experts and they beat up lots of Yakuza. Uh, there's also a cool beheading in that movie. But yeah, I'm a, uh, I'm a Dolph Lundgren fan. I made a video for the website MovieWeb about six months ago, 10 badass facts about Dolph Lundgren. As of this episode, it has about 400,000 views. I'm doing a lot of Dolph Lundgren setup because maybe not everybody <laughs> listening knows who he is. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run through this really quick so we can get into the meat of the video, but I figured this would be some of the fun stuff we'd be talking about anyway. Uh, Dolph Lundgren is best known as the Soviet Apollo Creed killer Ivan Drago from Rocky IV. But some things that you might not know about him, he is highly educated. 
Don't be fooled by the 250 pounds of muscle he carried around as He-Man in 1987's Masters of the Universe, which was quite terrible. <laughs> uh, the guy's practically a genius. Let's see, after doing his mandatory year in the Swedish Marine Corps, he earned a degree in chemical engineering from the Royal Institute of Technology, a master's from the University of Sydney, and a Fulbright scholarship to MIT. Though he Basically, left the kind of guy who you feel is so genetically gifted that there's no reason to sympathize with him for any reason. Oh, <laughs> right. He left MIT after just two weeks to pursue a career in the movies, encouraged by his girlfriend, Grace Jones. He met Grace Jones when he was working personal security for her in Australia. They became boyfriend and girlfriend. He moved with her to New York. Through her, he met Andy Warhol and all sorts of other characters. And then, yeah, was cast in Rocky IV, which was the beginning of his career. Also, he speaks six languages. Uh, Russian isn't one of them. We tend to think of him as having an accent because of Rocky IV, but actually his English is, his Swedish accent is barely perceptible. Uh, he was a karate champion. Uh, unlike, say, Steven Seagal, you know, he's, <laughs> he's an actual, actually skilled fighter and, and continues to train. He accidentally put Stallone in the hospital while they were making Rocky IV because he punched him so hard in the ribs that uh, Stallone went to intensive care with a swollen heart. He once managed a U.S. Olympic team. He once boxed a pro fighter on Russian television. Uh, he is, as we discussed, a Marvel movie OG. <laughs> he turned down Gladiator during a lengthy break that he spent raising his kids. And probably my favorite story and last of these little factoids, uh, he scared away some real-life bad guys. Once upon a time, some criminals broke into his home. He wasn't there. Three robbers broke in, tied up his then-wife, threatened her, and in the middle of it, as they were collecting valuables and about to make their escape, they saw a family photo that included Dolph, realized who he was, and immediately got the fuck out of there. <laughs> so, um, That's pretty, pretty good. badass. Yeah, Brandon Lee has a similar story, which he told on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno around the time he was promoting Rapid Fire, where uh, he came home and there was a guy standing in his bedroom with his VCR in his hands. Brandon Lee comes home. The guy grabs a knife out of the kitchen. They end up squaring off in the living room. Brandon uh, took the knife from him and put the guy in the hospital. <laughs> so, womp, womp. Yeah, whoops. Tried to rob Bruce Lee's kid's house. When Drew told me to watch this Dolph Lundgren TED Talk, which all of those words together sounds hilarious, especially if you aren't aware of the highly educated part I just went over. I assumed it was because Drew knows what a fan of Dolph Lundgren I am, and that was sort of the extent of it, and I was busy and didn't get around to watching it until he cajoled me into it a second time a few days later. And then once I did, 30 seconds into it, I texted him and I said, you didn't tell me this was going to be so fucking heavy. <laughs> and he's like, ha, 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 keep watching. And yeah, it is a very Hoosier illusion appropriate TED talk because it's all about childhood trauma and how things that happen to us early in life affect the rest of our life. And as as my dad likes to say, emotional shit has a half life of forever. Wow, that is perfectly said. So yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna toss it over to you now because I, after watching it, you know, immediately 
texted it to you and said, here's a homework assignment for you. And for people listening, we'll put it in the show notes. The TED Talk's only 15 minutes long, so definitely recommend watching it. And it's, it's not going to take up a lot of your time. It potentially will take up a lot of your headspace um, yeah. in the aftermath of seeing it. But, uh, and Neil, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what that video is about? I think you'll probably be able to articulate it better than me. So I don't know half as much about our friend Dolph as Ryan does, but I was aware that he was very Swedish in the sense that he had all these ridiculous skills and abilities that Swedish people seem to have. Um, and just like I said, was genetically gifted, like came out of the womb six, five and sculpted and beautiful and, you know, lucked into a relationship with Grace Jones because he just was standing in the right place at the right time and then went to New York and was standing in the right place at the right time and became famous because he was him. It's like Dolph privilege. <laughs> he's like I said, he's one of those people that you wouldn't think to have any sort of empathy for, or you wouldn't assume that there's really anything, any need for, for them to feel bad or any source of suffering in their life uh, because everything seemed to just kind of fall uh, their way. And you don't really ever know anyone and you, you know, you don't know anyone's life really um, because oftentimes we don't know ourselves. The, the point of the Ted talk for him was to address how being battered by his father uh, led him to freeze as a child, as he put it. He said, you know, when you're, when you're physically threatened or you're, or you're subjected to trauma, there's fight and there's flight. Except when you're a three year old kid getting kicked across the room by your dad, you can't really do either. So your third option is to freeze and a part of you just shuts down and you spend a huge amount of your life trying to escape that trauma that you've just sort of put in a in a meat locker inside. And eventually, you're going to escape your way off a cliff, whether you eat yourself to death or you destroy your marriage with affairs or, you know, you get on the needle or you're taking pills, you're drinking, whatever it is. The, the the attempt to escape from yourself is going to lead to ruin. And if you're lucky, you figure out a way to start defrosting that part of you that was that was hurt and figure out a way through it. You know, and it seems it seems like it's it's the same toolbox for everybody. No matter what exact type of therapy you do or what type of meditation, mindfulness, whatever, like it's all some comp some cocktail of yoga, meditation, therapy, antidepressants, positive thinking, you know, and that's what he talked about. And then he, if his daughters for all the damage he caused them trying to not screw up his current relationship, uh, he came out of all that trying to forgive himself, but then also being inspired to try to help other people who are going through trauma. And I'd be curious to know more. I wish he'd talked a little bit more about that, about how helping other people through difficult situations helps him deal with trauma. 
Yeah, he talked about it a bit. He, he did a film called Skin Trade, which is about human trafficking, which was incidentally the last time I had the occasion to interview him was when he was promoting that movie. And through doing that film, became very involved in that as an, as an issue and as a cause with a particular organization. And, and he does he does give an anecdote about a woman who was actually there in the audience who was a slave, for lack of a yeah. better word, to a wealthy family in Brentwood, California, um, and is now, you know, free and uh, living a, a real life independent of that. And he talked about how, you know, having a hand and, and helping there has, has made him feel. I thought one thing that was pretty powerful, he, he begins the TED Talk by talking about, you know, there was a boy in Sweden who had this many siblings and his dad was in the army and his mom was this. And, and it sounds very sort of like, okay, we're going to hear an inspiring story about how awesome Dolph Lundgren is. Like, <laughs> you know, I'd watch that because I think he's pretty yeah. awesome. But, uh, you know, he very quickly then talks about being three or four years old and his father kicking him across the room into a bookshelf for walking in front of the television. And then all of that abuse beginning. And yeah, it immediately just sort of subverts your expectations and your understanding and your your own sort of self-worth and value that you measure against people, whether they, whatever sort of heroes, whether they're athletes, celebrities, other people in your life. And to think about Dolph Lundgren, you know, not only living with that trauma and not addressing it for several decades, but also even, you know, I was curious for your thoughts about this part when he talks about coping mechanisms and about avoiding that thing, as you put it, you know, those feelings kind of put away in that meat locker and feeling that uh, rather than fight or flight, that freezing up sort of defense mechanism, which he talks about falling back into basically immediately upon becoming famous, you know, walking out of the Rocky four premiere, you know, with his then girlfriend, Grace Jones. And for the first time people paying more attention to him than her. And then immediately sort of retreating into that, you know, four year old boy um, mentality. I thought it was interesting that he mentioned overeating as one of his, coping mechanisms and it's again kind of subverting expectations because when you think of him even today and he's still super ripped and kind of like the perfect physical specimen you know to think about him struggling with food was pretty eye-opening you know and pretty humanizing when it's like okay you can be Dolph Lundgren sorry he's 61 years old I just looked it up yeah his birthday is four days before mine uh you, you can be Dolph Lundgren and food can still be a problem for you you know well, yeah, and, and <laughs> food addictions are a bitch because you can't avoid food. You can go without Coke or alcohol and live a totally productive life. You can't avoid food. So whether you're whether you're anorectic or bulimic or an overeater, whatever it it is, that's that's a particularly tricky one to manage over time. I don't, I've never gone to overeaters anonymous, but I definitely eat emotionally. I always have. And the, I think for me, a lot of it has been blood sugar and, uh, mood regulation. 
the basically carbs and when you when you jack your blood sugar up, you give yourself a feeling of contentedness that people with normal brains have every day when they wake up. But when you're depressed, you don't have the chemical balance that other people do. But if you have a Dr. Pepper or a hunk of French bread or French fries, you can fake your way into that feeling. So there's a lot of there's a lot of different layers that go into it. But yeah, I, I wasn't surprised by that because I know from my own experience with like mood regulation and and overeating. I mean, when, when you when you're fucked up about something, like anything, is an opportunity to to overdo it. You know, I was surprised more that he touched on. I don't know if he, I don't think he called it sex addiction, but like. Uh, basically irresponsible sexual behavior and like not being able to to regulate himself that way because you know he was Dolph Lundgren and I'm sure that he was able to sleep with any number of people that he wanted to yeah I saw I saw an interview with him just a couple of years ago when he said that uh during the Grace Jones era she would bring back as many as five women a night <laughs> for both of them and, uh, and, he, and he described it in the interview now as exhausting and that yeah. was before he was famous. Yeah, well, I mean that that sounds that's one of those things like when you're when you're a civilian, when you're living on earth and not in the penthouse, that like there's like a crazy wild rock and roll ideal and that sounds really cool, but it's you know like after the first high, you're just you're just an addict, you know, like yeah. after that first rush, the second time you're just trying to feel okay. So a lot of that party culture, when you look at it, when you're sober, it's fucking depressing. I'm curious for your thoughts about the moment where he said, you know, he talks about forgiving himself and seeking forgiveness from his children and from his ex-wife and from other people in his life that he's hurt. But he also mentions, and he sort of, tosses it in there as a one sentence deal forgiving his father and yeah. uh i mean wow you know i've something i've learned in my personal life about forgiveness holding a grudge is like drinking poison every day hoping the other person gets sick and yeah. i found that to be really true in my own life and that forgiveness was important in that regard almost from a selfish perspective that forgiving another person for their, you know, the ways that they had wronged me, real or perceived, was equally important for me as it was for the other person. Uh, and I imagine, of course, that that's sort of what he's talking about. I would have to actually check to see. I assume, given his age, that his father's no longer around and that he's talking about a posthumous forgiveness. But yeah, how, how did that part hit you when you heard it? You know, that one's tough because it's, it's tough because I, I'm not, I'm not going to tell anyone who they should forgive and why, mm -hmm. because my hurts are, are my own and they're mine to deal with. And I'm not going to judge how other people process their own, their own stuff. There's, lots of shit that I can fully understand not forgiving someone for doing. But like you said, forgiving forgiveness is not for 
the forgiven. It's so that you can move on. And I, I think in this country, we, we, we have a really muddled sense of what justice is and we confuse vengeance and justice and atonement. And like, it's all, it's all wrapped up in this like really stupid punitive uh, belief that, that making other people hurt will make everything better. It's not restorative. So the people who've been harmed continue to have that sense of hurt. The people who did the harm continue to be people who do harm. And we just keep churning over and over again. So I, so having said that, yeah, I, I forgive I've, I've tried to forgive every shitty thing or every disappointing thing that I've suffered in my life, you know, as, as petty as they might seem, you know, to other people who've, who've suffered in different or greater ways, because it, I can't move past it until I say, you know, whether it's, whether it's me, like forgiving myself, myself for being a dick in the nineties or forgiving my dad for, not having dealt with enough of his shit when I was a kid to have the relationship with me that I actually needed, I could stay mad about that forever. And there's no fucking point because I'm not a little kid anymore. He's not my dad when I was 10 anymore. So, and this is, (laughs) this is maybe a prelude to, to the take your dad to therapy episode, but I can have a relationship with my dad today or not. I can't have a relationship with him when I was 10 and I can't be Mm. mad about shit that happened when I was 10 unless I'm going to talk about it now and get it resolved and move forward. So, and and part of resolving it and moving forward is forgiving him and forgiving me and moving forward. So I think it was, I think it's necessary for people to talk about that because I don't think we can truly move beyond stuff until we, forgive those who trespass against us for lack of a better phrase. We all do shitty things. Some of us do far shittier things than others, but none of us is all bad and none of us is all good. And the thing I liked about that Ted talk is that he just owned the hurt that he caused and shared why he was a person that did hurtful things. Mm. And once you lay all that out, once you say this stuff happened to me and it hurt me and I didn't know what to do about it. Then I spent 20 years hurting other people because I didn't know what to do with my own stuff. Then when I started doing something about it, I realized that I needed to go back to the start and make amends, you know, which there's a reason why making amends is part of the 12 step process, make amends for all of the shit along the way. And once you kind of catch up to the present moment, you can move forward in the present. But until you, until you say, I'm sorry. And until you forgive yourself for making those mistakes, for doing those bad things, you can't, you can't be whole. You can't, the, the that deep well of sadness isn't going to get filled up until you get to that point. You know, I think one of the things that will be applicable 
to people who are discovering this podcast and, you know, maybe they're listening to this episode a year after we recorded it. Maybe they're listening to it the next day is something he touches on where he says that therapy and meditation were recommended to him. And his first reaction was, that's for sissies. And as much as the more quote unquote woke among us may scoff at his scoffing, I think that that persists as not just with Generation X people like ourselves or boomers. I think that that's still an idea that that persists amongst men in general that, you know, call it toxic masculinity, whatever you want to label it. There is still this idea that seeking professional help is for someone else. It's not for you. Either you can cowboy up and deal with your own shit or, you know, whatever form that misguided notion takes. It's one that a lot of us carry. I know I carried it, um, whether it was with antidepressants, talk therapy. I definitely carried this notion that I could solve things on my own and that I didn't need what I saw as external forces you know, helping me. And, and part of, you know, when we, when Dolph talks about his coping mechanisms with trauma, and as you astutely observed, you know, the different forms that filling that empty well of that deep well of sadness, whether it's with food or alcohol or sex or whatever ways we fill it, one of those things is validation that we seek from others. And I think in my case, probably, the biggest thing I've sought emotionally is that validation. You know, I wanted to build things on my own and this persists to now, you know, I want to uh, do things myself and be recognized for doing them without handouts or help or, uh, you know, the generosity of others that I was able to, make something of myself despite the odds. Uh, and, and that, and that, you know, making something of myself comes in, in different forms. And, you know, I, I never saw it to become famous for its own sake, uh, which is, you know, a big problem in our culture right now. Uh, but I, but I have looked for recognition and validation, whether it's someone telling me, uh, what a great insightful interview I conducted, or that I, you know, had a better handle on something than someone else or whatever it is. It's sort of fame at a certain level in terms of recognition. And that, while it's been a a good motivator to accomplish things that I am certainly proud of, it is, you know, in my most honest moments, it is driven by a need for validation that goes back to a childhood of, of not feeling seen. You know, yeah. of, <laughs> to reference a bad Metallica song, being the invisible kid, you know, and uh, and and dealing with um, different forms of abuse and abandonment issues from the death of a parent and from the literal abandonment of another parent. And, you know, on down the list, I took pride in avoiding alcohol and drugs and for a long time sex and a lot of other ways that people 
fill those holes. And I thought, well, I'm better than all those people because I'm not doing those things. And instead, it's just was, a different way of doing it. I was filling it with my own sanctimoniousness, drug, you know, which, yeah, sanctimonious was one of those drugs, self-righteousness. And, you know, unlike Dolph Lundgren, uh, you know, you and I discovered activism as a as a means of coping very, at a very young age. And while, again, not to beat ourselves up too much, because I think that we were able to do some good and it certainly was better than a lot of other choices we could have made in yeah. our early adulthood. It was just as much driven by a need to fill the hole as it was a sense of altruism and really loving and helping others, which I think oh, is yeah. something we get to later. You know, if I if I fix the world, I'll fix myself. Yes. Or if, or if I'm bu- or if I'm busy fixing other other people and things, no one's gonna notice what's broken in me. Yeah, I'm, I'm creating cover for that by putting the focus elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, it's not rocket science why so many celebrities become embittered really quickly after achieving fame mm. because they realize this thing they've been desperate for didn't make them any happier. I wonder if anyone's ever studied it, but there's like – there's almost it's like a clockwork thing especially in music like the second album is often features songs about disillusionment or mm-hmm. like anger at the at the the new fans like it's, it's just this childish thing because we we think that if we just have this thing we're chasing everything will be better and it's not because the chasing it, it's a, it's escape like just go down into the well and and start working your way back up and when you get out chances are you'll have an even better story to tell and you'll feel better when people listen to it teenage angst has paid off well now i'm bored and old i mean like it's yeah so how many how many fucking successful talented people you know drink themselves to death drug themselves to death you know screw their way into stds blow their fucking heads off like if 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 we're trying to do other stuff to tr- to be happy, we're missing the point that we just need to be happy, and everything else is just stuff we do. Mm. Well, I would say to wrap up our Dolph Lundgren TED Talk inspired episode, <laughs> uh, whether it's whether it's thank you for listening to my TED Talk. Whether <laughs> whether it's whether it's talk therapy, whether it's antidepressants, whether it's meditation, whether it's some form of healthy religion or spirituality that doesn't uh, oppress or denigrate the rights of others around you, whether it's exercise in a way that's healthy and not (laughs) driven by the wrong things, whatever it is, (laughs) find help, find community, find fellowship. Don't fight these battles on your own because even someone as gifted and talented and successful as Dolph Lundgren can you know, reach middle age and feel empty inside and damage people around him because of trauma from the age of three and four that hasn't, uh, hasn't been dealt with. And, you know, I think you you also said something that is still a tough one for me, Uh, you know, recognizing and accepting that, you know, and and we're going to get into this in our next episode that you can't, fix the relationship 10-year-old Neil had with the dad of 
that era because those two people don't exist any longer, you know, and it's more about what relationship can you have now while forgiving and accepting and recognizing the sins of the past. Also understanding that there's no remaking it. There's no fixing it. There's just going forward. You know, if you're going yeah. through, if you're going through hell, keep going. I think it's important to, to real, to challenge head on the idea that, that dealing with your mental health and, and not just sucking it up is somehow weak because it, it's, you're gaslighting yourself because mm. the hardest thing to do is to look at yourself and to go down into that empty space in yourself and to be vulnerable and to be scared and to not know what to do. That that's fucking tough work. That's hard shit. If you're under the impression that real men just suck it up, then you probably need to rethink your definition of realness. Keeping it real unhappy, I guess, to paraphrase Chris Rock. That does it for this episode. Join us next time when Neil tells me about taking his dad to therapy.